North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Good afternoon, everyone. Good day. Uh, and welcome to the Impossible State podcast at CSIS. My name is Victor Cha. Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, as well as Vice Dean and Professor at Georgetown University. And today on the podcast, for our listeners, we'll be talking about sanctions and whether sanctions work or not. And we couldn't have two better experts to dis discuss this than the two we have here with us today, Anthony Ruggiero and Sue Kim. So let me begin the podcast by first introducing, properly introducing our two honored guests. Um, so, I'll start with Sue. Sue Kim is a Policy Practice Area Lead, or PAL, at the Logistics Management Institute, where she oversees LMI strategy for, for the practice area, including business development and policy innovation. For many of our listeners, you will probably know Sue more from her previous role, which was as a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation, working on national security issues in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and she began her career uh, as a Korea political and leadership analyst uh, at that organization over there in Langley, in Langley, Virginia. Um, and of course, also our good friend joining us, Anthony Ruggiero, who is Senior Director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, FDDs, Nonproliferation and Biodefense Program, uh, as well as a Senior Fellow at FDD. Anthony has also spent uh, quite a bit of time in the U.S. government and left uh, the U.S. government as Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs on the National Security Council as Senior Director for Counterproliferation and Biodefense. And, and of course, Anthony and I also spent a good bit of time together um, doing the six-party talks in the mid-2000s, and we both have the scars to show for it. So, um, But anyway, thanks uh, for both of you joining us today. I see we have a nice prop now. We have a old, an old radio. That's our, that's our latest prop for those of you who are watching the podcast live. Um, and, but um, today's discussion is about sanctions uh, in North Korea. Um, and I want to start with you, Anthony. Um, Anthony, you're, you've been one of the most prolific writers on this question of the application of sanctions to North Korea, economic sanctions, financial sanctions, listings, things of this nature. And I couldn't think of somebody other than the two of you who are more expert on this. Uh, but maybe you could start us off by talking a little bit about the history of sanctions when it comes to North Korea, and then what your latest views are on it. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here at CSIS. Uh, great to be with uh, with you and and to talk about this important subject. You know, when I when I uh, when I left government again, uh, you know, in two, uh, 2021, I've been talking about what I call the the robust North Korea sanctions myth. 
because I think there's a view out there that North Korea policy has failed and the policy that has failed is a sanctions policy. And when in reality, uh, except for three years uh, since 2005, we have actually not had a robust sanctions policy on North Korea. And that means uh, a couple of things. First, quantitatively, whether we are uh, putting new designations in place, whether qualitatively, whether we're targeting the right kinds of activities, and then whether we are sustaining that. Because as all three of us know, you know, North, we sanction North Korea and then North Korea finds another way to do the same activity. And so what we have to see, see or we should see is a sustained uh, new numbers on new numbers of sanctions targeting the right kinds of uh, areas. And I'm sure we'll talk more about what I think those are. I mean, the preview is we should be targeting their revenue and we're not doing that now. And when you dig into recent sanctions, they're you know woefully inadequate for the threat that we face today. Right. Thanks. And you also, there's something, a graphic that you wanted to show us about this. Maybe we could pull that up. Sure. So maybe you could talk us through the graphic. Sure. In the, the one of the slides that I've pre presented here, basically what I've done is I've gone back to 2005, which is where uh, most of us believe targeted financial sanctions, which is what we used to call them, started. That's when George W. Bush, who, who you served in the White House, uh, that's when he signed Executive Order 13382, which is a global counterproliferation executive order. It's been used for Syria, North Korea, Iran. It's been used for other, uh, other activities. And what you see here is plotted new designations over from, between present and 2005, 429 total. And in the circle area, you see three years, the last year of Obama, 2016, when President Obama told then-President-elect Trump that, according to press reports, that North Korea would be one of the, his top priorities. And then the first two years of President Trump, right before uh, summit diplomacy began with Kim Jong-un. And then on the right side of the graphic, you see uh, both the second two years of Trump and the first two years of uh, Biden. And in that circle, 62.7% of all North Korea sanctions occurred within that circle. And then in the next slide, it just shows uh, graphically um, it, where, you know, the orange line, the one on the bottom there is still that same graph that you just saw, but just a cumulative sum where it just really represents that that sharp increase is those three years. And then on the left, you just see sort of the steady incline. And then on the right, you see a, 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 you know, a steady incline and not that sharp one. So maybe just for our listeners and our viewers, you could just explain, since we're talking about from this 2005 period forward, what were different about these sanctions at this time from... Um, from like the Trading with the Enemy Act and all these other sanctions that have been on North Korea since the Korean War. Right. And I should have said these were these are generally treasury blocking sanctions, which are the ones that, that most people focus on. There are other types of sanctions, financial sanctions. You mentioned the Trading with the Enemy Act sanctions. There are many sanctions that we've imposed on North Korea, but then we've removed them in, in, the, in the circumstance of diplomacy. What you really see when you dig into 2016, 2017, and 2018, we, we pierced the, the other myth, which is that we cannot go after China. 
And what we saw in those three years that the United States, again, a Democratic president and a Republican president, two people who could be not more opposite than each other, going after Chinese banks, Chinese companies, Chinese individuals. And what you see is that really only occurs within those three years. So that's really the qualitative analysis. And then when you bring it to the present, you know, I would just say, like, if you look at the designation that happened last week from Treasury, which was the first one since December 1st, they targeted two individuals inside of North Korea, but then they targeted a network that well, it's not even clear that that was an active network since it was identified two years ago and the bank account associated with it. This is court of the UN panel of experts was closed in September 2020. So we're, we're not even going after things apparently that are active. Uh, so that gets to the point of, you know, we're not even doing the numbers, but then when we do it, we're not even doing the things that can be impactful. Now, I think we want to also dig into why, why we're not doing these things. But let me go to Sue now and ask Sue that, um, so we've, you know, we've heard from Anthony about the types of sanctions, the ebbs and flows in the sanctioning that has happened historically over time. And I wanted to start with you, Sue, and ask you um, sort of to step back and ask the bigger policy question of whether, like, what are these sanctions for? And um, and then how do we measure whether they work or not? So I'll have to say that I do agree with Anthony's statements about um, where administrations have been with respect to the sanctions. In terms of the utility, um, I think that there are practical elements to sanctions and where we're trying to stop North Korean behavior. We're also trying to target the behaviors and activities of third-party countries like China and Russia um, so that North Korea's aiders and abettors are also put to a halt. Going to the, I guess, looking at where we are in terms of sanctions and the, the debate that we have about the utility, I think what's missing is that sanctions, one, are not to be judged by just solely by themselves. They have to be applied within a, a broader spectrum of diplomatic, economic, military, and even the symbolic political gestures. That's where uh, the utility, I think, of um, sanctions should be measured. Uh, the other aspect of sanctions is that I think the perception that we have about sanctions is that it's, it's hurting the North Korean people, when in fact the intended in, uh, purpose of sanctions is to go after the North Korean elites and to put or, or to send a message to the North Korean leadership that the the behaviors are being watched and that there are consequences. So the idea that these sanctions are going down, trickling down to the, the bottom rungs of North Korean society, I think there's a fallacy there. And I think that that's a, a trap that we fall into because it's one, it's an easy argument to make that the United States is basically targeting the poor North Korean people, when in fact, that is not really our intent. Our intent is to stop North Korean leadership behavior and the leadership's penchant for provocations and, and the weapons you know, the buildup of Kim's nuclear arsenal. That's what we're trying to go after. But I think the debate that we see within the policy circles and also I think uh, just where we are politically today is that sanctions seem to have this implied, um, you know, misperception, I would say, that uh, it's, it's, it's hurting the wrong people and that the intended effect uh, impact of sanctions is to go after the common folk, which we clearly know that that's not the intent. Okay. I have a follow-up question on that last point, but before I do, so sanctions clearly, as you said, aim to, aim to sort of shape 
North Korean behavior, right? The sanctions are, are what we call a form of compellence, right? They impose a cost on the target state and you just keep hitting them with that cost until they change their behavior. But it, do, in your, in your mind, do, do sanctions, um, serve a purpose aside from trying to shape non-proliferation behavior? Do they serve a purpose in terms of negotiations? You said as part of a tool in a broader toolkit. Like, uh, or, or are sanctions largely to try to collapse the regime? I'm sure there's some who, who advocate sanctions for that purpose. Just what, what are your thoughts on, on these questions? So dealing with North Korea, I think, involves a mixture of punishments um, or you know, ways to provoke the North Korean regime to bring them to the table. Now, when it comes to negotiations, I think we also have to think about what it is we're trying to negotiate. Are we trying to basically limit the size of the nuclear capabilities, or are we trying to aim for denuclearization? And if there's no prick or if there's no pinch that Kim Jong-un feels, then he's not going to want to think about other options. At this point, I don't think we've shown enough. I don't want to use the word force, but I do think that we haven't been able to demonstrate the extent of our capabilities in terms of deterring North Korea, um, or Kim Jong-un rather, uh, his penchant for provocations, his penchant for wanting to build up his nuclear weapons program. So when it comes to negotiations, the first thing I think we need to think about is what we're trying to go after. Is it really just, you know, for diplomacy's sake? Or are we trying to really bring about change to North Korean society where we do see um, the leadership being affected by our decision-making? I don't think we're there yet at this point. Um, and that, to me, um, as, as someone who watches North Korea, that is the most alarming aspect of, of policy is that we're not really attacking the heart of the matter. And it could be because... It's not just North Korea that we're dealing with right now. It's China, it's Russia and other countries and COVID and the economy. So there are different buttons that when you push one, the other buttons kind of, you know, go helter skelter. So there requires, I think, a, a balance in, in the way we approach the North Korean problem. But while we're trying to find that sweet balance between or, uh, carrots and sticks, I think we've shown that we don't have enough sticks or we're not willing actually to use enough sticks to bring Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table, not for his benefit, but to really see a quantitative and a qualitative decrease in his program. And then on this question, you, in your initial intervention, you mentioned this popular perception that sanctions um, hurt the North Korean people, but that that's clearly not the intent of them, right? They go after elites, they go after human rights violations, they go after non-proliferation behavior. And playing devil's advocate for both of you, I mean, you know, there there is the argument that the sanctions, particularly we saw in 2016, 2017, rolled out by the UN Security Council, which were much broader general trade sanctions, were in a sense quite different from the sanctions we saw up until that point. And in fact, when Kim Jong-un met Trump in Vietnam, in Hanoi, um, we later learned that those were the sanctions that, I don't know, Anthony, if you were, you were probably in government at that time, so I don't know how much you can talk about this, but uh, you can at least talk about what you read in the newspaper. Um, but um, those were the, the sanctions that we learned later, you know, when Che Sun-hee and um, um, the foreign minister came out were the ones they want lifted. So would you consider those to be ones that are hurting the, the public? And I'd love both of your views on this. So, so 
It's, for me, I, there's a gap in, in, in understanding what it is that Kim Jong-un actually was, was trying to articulate when he was saying that the sanctions were, or when, when the North Korean government wanted those sanctions removed because he's still proliferating, he's still developing. So the thing is, I, I don't think we're, we've reached a point where we've communicated enough to Kim Jong-un that, you know, if you do A, we'll do B, and B is actually going to either deter or deter, discourage you from doing A again. That wasn't really there, and I, I also think that if the sanctions were really pinching Kim Jong-un, if the sanctions were really pinching the North Korean elites, we would have felt some kind of a squeak from the regime, and we haven't. So part of me thinks that it was also a part of North Korea's you know, diplomatic, symbolic um, gesturing, I would say, um, where Kim Jong-un was looking for any way to get U.S. buy-in to the idea that Kim Jong-un was really willing to negotiate for a denuclearization agreement. But again, I think, thankfully, um, after the second round of negotiations, um, it came to a halt. Negotiations came to a halt, but <laughs> we're still seeing North Korea um, make headlines. We're still seeing ICBM testings. We're still seeing the, the, the big question whether or not North Korea is going to conduct its seventh nuclear test. So um, that, that would be my answer. Andy, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would just say the Kim family is not an innocent bystander here, right? They're making decisions about where they spend North Korea's revenue. Uh, you know, we know even now, even with sanctions not being well implemented, that North Korea is making hundreds of millions of dollars just from sanctions evasion alone. If they truly wanted to improve the circumstance of the North Korean people, they could spend that money on the North Korean people. They could stop selling, uh, you know, fishing areas where protein can be fished that could be used for, for uh, the North Korean people. And, and there are on and on examples. Instead, Kim stands in front of missiles and does missile tests and continues his prohibited nu uh, nuclear missile programs, money for the elites, money for the military. So to me, Whenever I always hear that argument, I, I, I say, you know, the Kim family is not an innocent bystander. I'll also point out that in circumstances and in, uh, in this particular circumstance and in other circumstances where we've tried the so-called white channel uh, to, you know, provide a channel that is allowed for financial transactions. In the case of North Korea, that's usually abused. So that becomes a, a challenge there. The, really, the only way in my mind to improve the circumstances of the North Korean people is more either the regime has to change or it's a protest to change in some way. Yeah, I read somewhere that they estimated the cost of all the missile testing they did in 2022, um, and it was something like 200 or $300 million. Um, and that obviously could have been res national resources that might have been used in other ways, right? Um, uh, earlier, Anthony, you mentioned China. And the sanctioning against uh, uh, some of the sanctioning against China, and early on when we when we started these sort of smart sanctions, financial sanctions, I think they were called defensive measures at the time. Sort of the idea of like sanctioning China was kind of the third rail. Like we were, everybody was very careful about that. Um, but that seems to be less the case now. And I guess I have two questions for both of you. Like, what's been the Chinese reaction, and has that had broader? implications for financial markets or for anything else. I remember back in the mid-2000s, everybody was worried that, oh, 
this could have major effects on the on the stock markets around the world and everything if we started ch sanctioning Chinese banks and companies. But that doesn't seem to be the case, right? Well, that's right. In 2005, and you, you remember this clearly, uh, Victor, we went after a bank in Macau, uh, Banco Delta Asia. You know, that's a complicated story. Um, that was more about the bank itself and North Korea getting caught up in that. Uh, but what we saw in that time period, 2016, 2017, and 2018, is we heard those same arguments. This is the third rail. It'll impact the global economy. But in fact, the reverse happened. China started implementing the sanctions they actually voted for. They started cracking down on that because the simple fact was is that we, made, we gave them a choice. The U.S. gave them a choice. Again, a Democratic administration and a Republican administration, same choice. You can either work with North Korea and not have access to the U.S. financial system system, or you can have access to your U.S. financial system. And of course, China chose to work with the United States. Now, when you, when you fast forward to today and you look in November and December, they, the Treasury Department went after representatives in China of Air Corio, their national flag carrier, but they didn't go after the networks inside of China. In fact, one of the press releases said that one of the individuals was working with a Chinese company, and that company was not named, it was not sanctioned, and clearly they were working with other Chinese companies. So I don't know whether it's because they're, they're sort of self-deterring uh, in terms of going after China, but what we're not doing now, and really haven't since 2018, is going after the source of that. I'll also say that this administration, the Biden administration last year, said that 20 to 100,000 North Korean overseas laborers, which are prohibited by UN resolution, uh, should, be, should have been stopped in December 2019, are in China uh, currently, whatever that range is. I know it's a very wide range. But they also said that the regime gets hundreds of millions of dollars annually just from that practice. And so when you tag that with the estimate you gave, that's a, that's you know that 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 is China violating the UN sanctions that they themselves voted for. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Sue, I mean, I'd love to hear your views on the China question, but then I'd also like to add to that the whole question of COVID, right? I mean, North Korea has been under COVID lockdown now since January of 2020, uh, arguably the harshest sanctions ever on North Korea. Um, and yet we don't really see a change in behavior. Um, if anything, their behavior has gotten worse. So, so I, so the, I guess that's the first question is any additional thoughts on China? And the second, and I, Anthony also, I'd love to hear your, your views on this. Um, do sanctions really work if China has been, I mean, if North Korea has been locked down for three years under, under the, under COVID? So the issue with China, I think, as Anthony mentioned, um, and I think this was what he was alluding to, is that there are, you know, primary, secondary, maybe tertiary steps that we need to take in terms of sanctioning China. And we've, we seem to have scratched the surface when it comes to enforcing sanctions on these third-party countries and third-party entities. That is where I think the, the hiccup is. And in this current geopolitical backdrop where U.S.-China competition seems to be you know, it's it's intensifying, but it's also morphing into this, what kind of competition is this? It's not just economics. It's it's a competition or a struggle for, I think, ideology and, and you know, a rules-based order versus that other alternative. So it's becoming much more complicated. And I think because it's becoming much more complicated, there's maybe even greater hesitation to enforce 
something on China. And that's because the United States economy is also um, intertwined with, with the Chinese companies and Chinese businesses. So that's where we are with China. In terms of COVID and, and whether or not these sanctions are actually working on North Korea, I still maintain the position that we have not really seen a, a fully a robust um, all-around network of sanctions enforced on North Korea, on China, on Russia, and other countries that are complicit. Kim, I think that even if he feels the pinch of sanctions, he's still going to go after weaponization because that's the way for him to survive. And we've seen also, you know, those images of Kim Jong-un with his daughter, um, and there's perceptions that she might be the successor. We don't know that, I think. Uh, but the fact that he's still doing what he does, um, there's, we have to be careful because I think that's what people see, and they say that sanctions don't work. But I think so long as he's not personally feeling that pinch and so long as there's no real qualitative and all-around impact on his weapons ambitions, he's unstoppable. And the fact that we have countries like China and also Russia uh, willing to sort of play with North Korea and, and to, to form alliances is also going to uh, make Kim become more emboldened. And it, it also, I think, justifies his pursuit of weapons. He's also seeing the example of Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. And he's seeing that I can't live without nuclear weapons. And it's it's very, um, it's helpful for me to have. Uh, and where we see, you know, rising tensions with the United States and, and countries like China and Russia, there's going to be more of a demand, I think, within Kim Jong-un to, um, to preserve and I think to also raise the value of um, of his weapons program. I want to go to Anthony on the COVID lockdown question, but before I do that, you talked about the daughter, Jue. What do you think is going on there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question because I, as I think from an instinctive nature, um, we tend to just glam onto whatever is shiny and, and new. And she's shiny, she's new, she's young, um, she's the fourth generation Kim. So there's been a lot of hype, I think, when it comes to assessing what she is and what value she holds. And it's not that we should not be, you know, giving our attention to North Korean leadership, but there's this other really important thing called the nuclear weapons program that allows Kim Jong-un to be who he is and that allows the Kim Jong-un family to, to be who they are. That's really important, too. And I think, you know, we have to be able to sort of, one, keep ourselves from being distracted by those shiny objects, while also realizing that there might be maybe other intentions beyond just leadership and succession that North Korea is trying to use for whatever domestic or external circumstances that Kim Jong-un is facing. So there's always, it's not just a two-sided coin, but I think it's it's like a helix where there's multiple sides of this and we can't just rule out one because it doesn't seem to make sense. So as an analyst, I think we have to be careful in, in how we interpret North Korean behavior and you know, what we see in, in the public is not everything to it. There might be other factors and situations at play that we're not really privy to. Um, but again, that's also not to say that we should completely dismiss the idea of something going on behind the scenes in the Kim family. So 
I think in short, it, it requires us to be very flexible in our thinking um, because certain assumptions that we hold about the regime in the third generation Kim leadership might not be, you know, a continuity that we saw from Kim 1 and Kim 2 and now Kim 3. North Korean palace politics, about as black a box as you can imagine. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, Anthony, I also want to go to you on this question of the COVID lockdown. And so, as somebody, you know, whose expertise is sanctions, what do you think about this lockdown? I mean, if anybody had asked me in January 2020, how long can they last completely locked down like this? I would have said, like, at most six months, but here we are three years later. And, and, and what does that mean for sanctions? Well, much of the sanctions evasion, though, is how, happening outside of North Korea, right? So we already have the overseas laborers. We have the vessels either transport, exporting coal, which is a violation of UN sanctions, or importing uh, petroleum. We have other, you know, cyber-related sanctions activities. Those are all happening outside of North Korea. So those probably are happening unaffected. I, I think the core question is, you know, these are strategic programs, Helping the military and helping the elites are also strategic priorities. I would imagine that those things are going to go, going to get into North Korea. Uh, you know whether they have to sit somewhere for a period of time so that you know they're they're uh, you know not infected with COVID or whatever North Korea believes. Uh, but but it, to me, you know, the, I think the program is continuing with very little disruption. Uh, and, and going back to something uh, that Sue said, like, you know, to me, you know, the, the bumper sticker is we have to disrupt the status quo. You know, that Kim is very comfortable now. You know, this is, and I don't know, we'll talk about it later, but this is why he feels like he can get into the Ukraine war in some way. This is why he can do, you know, have a year where it's the most ballistic missile test ever. It's a little surprising he didn't do a nuclear test, but I'm sure there's some plan out there of, of when he's going to surprise us with that. Uh, for right now, he, he's pretty comfortable. And back to our conversation about the North Korean people, they certainly are not comfortable. But him and the elites and his family certainly are. And the sanctions are not the thing that's disrupting him and making him think twice about the things he wants to do, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. so, so if you were if you were back in the White House working on these sorts of issues, like, so what would be on the list? What would be some of the things that you can talk about? What would be some of the things that you would want to see more of? And if you can't be specific, just give us sort of general ideas. No, I, th I mean, I think we can be very specific. You know, to me, I'm glad that there are others here on what I like to call denuclearization island, um, because, you know, there are a lot of people who want to push that away, even as the long-term goal. I think that still can be the long-term goal. But what it starts with now is diplomatic pressure that we're not doing a very good job of. In 2022, we had, uh, you know, the Security Council didn't really have any statements or any kind of condemnation of North Korea's activity. That's that's a disappointment. And I think this administration could do more on the diplomatic side. I give them credit on the military pressure side. They're doing a lot of good things there. They're reversing the the uh, the, the pause or the halt in the US ROK elections. But when it comes to economic pressure, to me, it's very simple. Target the revenue. And the way you can do that is, as I noted, hundreds of millions of dollars from overseas laborers. They're, they're making money from the export of coal. Uh, and there also there's the cyber 
uh, area, which again, the sanctions may not be the best tool for that. They may, that may be more classic, you know, know your customer, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, where you're going to have to bring in not just North Korea sanctions experts, but cyber experts, but then also experts from the Treasury Department to talk through, like, how do you address banks? Because the money has to, you know, make its way out into the regular financial system at some point. That's probably going to be the end. They're making a lot of money, North Korea is, from those activities. That's probably going to be the, the point. So to me, if we could just start squeezing that pressure, uh, the, the revenue, and you know, have it go from a, a large amount to even a much smaller one, it'll force Kim to make these decisions that he'll, that he'll be uncomfortable with. And then we'll have, as I noted, we can impact the Ukraine war. Even in a small uh, way, we can do that. And then we can have China realizing that they have to help us in this rather than us having to go after large Chinese banks, which I think most people are unlikely to do. We're probably probably going after smaller Chinese banks will be the deterrence message that we're looking for. You mentioned in that last intervention that um, there hasn't been much action in the UN Security Council at all. Um, in large part, that's because China and Russia have not been cooperative. Uh, despite signing on to previous resolutions and not even willing to enforce the resolutions, the prior resolutions that they signed on to when North Korea has carried out testing. Sue, I wonder your thoughts on sort of Russia and sort of their role in sanctions evasion with North Korea and how much of a facilitating factor are they these days? I don't think they're facilitating anything at all. I mean, they're so preoccupied with the war and for uh, for Russia to to jump on the U.S. bandwagon at this point is basically undoing the steps that Putin took to be where he is right now. In the past, I, I, I would think that this applies both to Russia and to China, but they were on board with it because there was some utility they derived by being on board with the sanctions. Now that we're seeing, again, um, toughening you know competition with Washington and Beijing, um, Russia preoccupied with with you know invading Ukraine. There's even a less there's even less incentive, I would say, for China and also for Russia to to pause what they're doing and to say I'm going to help this U.S. effort to you know tighten the chokehold on Kim Jong Un because how does that help Putin ultimately? If anything, I think they're. Russia and North Korea are, are, are finding a, a, you know, a sweet spot of symbiotic relationship where um, both countries are isolated. Both countries um, are looking for friends to you know, put on their list. And what better time right now when there's, um, there's some confusion um, geopolitically um, and, and not just in terms of security, but the economic downturn is also something that is motivating, I think, political decisions. So for, for Russia, I, I don't really foresee Putin um, in his own, you know, voluntarily saying, you know what, I realize that what I did was wrong and I'm going to turn now to the United States and help the United States sanction North Korea because there's no value to that. And even if the North Korean assistance militarily to Russia is, is not a significant number or in terms, you know, in terms of changing that calculus, at this point, I think both sides are quite desperate to get help, and any help that either one could get, I think, is to them in that short-term view is probably going to be much better than 
um, than surrendering and, and saying, admitting that they were wrong and, and, and saying that they're going to actually do a 180 and, and you know, maybe follow the rules-based order and see the, the benefits and the actual value of, of, of turning around and, and actually making things, you know, doing things the right way, I'd say. I do want to sort of talk a little bit more about the Russia and North Korea piece in our in our last segment. And and first for not so much for our listeners, unfortunately, but for our viewers, um, I want to show you a, a, a graph that we put together uh, that looked at the approximate count of rail cars that we've observed at the Kasang Tumangang um, railroad crossing between Russia and, and China. Um, uh, sorry, Russia and, and, and North Korea. So again, for those of you who are able to watch this online, if we look at this date here, um, this is uh, November of, uh, of 2022, where we see this massive increase in the number of rail cars along the Russian-North Korea border. Um, so I guess the one question I'd like to ask uh, all of you is, like, what, whoops, what do you think that that is? I mean, see, we see this huge increase. What do you think is going on here? Anthony? Well, I think we heard from the White House, right, in January that November 2022 was right around when those uh, transfers started happening. I think it was mid-November uh, was the date that that, uh, that Admiral Kirby gave, right? Um, we're seeing some kind of increase. Um, back to your question about COVID lockdowns, you know, there's probably weapons going one way. It wouldn't surprise me if there are other things that North Korea needs going the other way. Uh, whether as a payment or as a way to evade the sanctions, yeah. So if if we go to the next picture, I wanted to show you. So this is the these were the this was the photo that was released by uh, the White House. The satellite imagery was dated uh, November eighteenth, twenty twenty two, and so you know we can't see what's in these rail cars. We just have to take their word for it. They probably have other means of doing this, but that the, this looks like these were. Um, uh, weapon shipments that were going from the North Korea to the Wagner Group uh, was view, and so what we did see after that, if we go to the if we go to the uh, to the next slide, what we see after this is actually um, a let me see if I can make this work. Yeah, this is what I wanted to show. Um, what we see here is a uh, a real growth in the number of uh, ore cars that are. Uh, that are moving now between Russia and, and North Korea um, that presumably has something to do with the, this trend. This is, again, a, about a month after Kirby's photos that give us some idea of sort of the volume of traffic that is happening between Russia and North Korea these days. Um, so it could be coincidence, but probably not, Sue. What do you think? I don't think it's coincidence at all. It, I mean, it, it just shows, one, the robust activity. And I, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but it's just baffling to see that despite the sanctions, despite the criticism and the scrutiny that we've shown on North Korea and Russia, the activity still continues. So that, to me, I'm, I'm drawing a blank or a question as to where policy is right now and, and what we're actually doing to want to stop those behaviors. But the utility of, of policy and actions aside, there's also this symbolic component that we can't dismiss. And I think symbolically, Anthony alluded to this as well, um, Kim is at a very comfortable position right now where he's used to provoking and, and, and not really getting any kind of punishment. 
He's used to getting rewards. And he's also now at a point where he knows that we've, you know, wittingly or not, we've sort of acknowledged the existence of North Korean nuclear weapons. We've not formally acknowledged North Korea uh, as a nuclear weapon state, but we're I think we're almost there. We're we're not doing anything about it. And that the, the the images that you've shown, I think that is one component of this this comfort level that Kim Jong-un is in right now. And it's it's not just Kim anymore. It's it's his, you know, it's his posse of friends in, in China and Russia that are also feeling comfortable. So that I think creates <laughs> more homework assignments, I think, for policy analysts and also for um for the government to try to find a a solution, and it's not going to take overnight, but there's a lot of factors that need to be considered, I'm sure. But um, this is one area where Kim Jong-un finds opportunities to poke holes, and, and um, there's opportunities to undermine um, some of our capabilities. And, you know, with, with COVID, with, with the economic downturn, and um, you know, the change in administration, I think, from Trump to Biden was also a, a point or a gap where Kim may have been expecting something under the Trump administration with a Democratic administration that we've said that we're open to negotiations with or dialogue, let's say, uh, with Kim Jong-un. And we haven't really shown that side. I don't know if we need to show that willingness. I think the verbal the comments that we've issued that we are open to dialogue should be enough because Kim knows pretty much where the United States stands. But at the same time, the responses that we've seen, and Anthony mentioned that um, we've shown militarily a step up with greater coordination between Washington and Seoul, that's great. But at the same time, what are what else are we doing to show that it's not just a a you know like an unbalanced, unequally yoked kind of a policy approach, but we need to show that there are other tools that we can play so that Kim is is not feeling as comfortable as he is right now. Annie, do you think that they're even interested in talking to us anymore? That that they being the North Koreans. I mean, you know, in the past, part of the argument for sanctions, part of it was compellence, right? impose a cost for bad behavior until the, to make them change their behavior. But, you know, I think many would agree in the broader U.S. government and around the region that the other purpose of sanctions, at least the talking point was, we're not trying to collapse the regime. We're trying to put pressure on them to come back to the negotiating table. Is that even like a credible argument anymore these days? Well, before before we jump on that, I, just on Russia, I, would, I want to point out that this is four months. We're four months after this started, and six weeks after Kirby talked about this, and we still haven't had a single sanction on North Korea for this activity. So I think we have to be very clear about that. And to me, I always say this is the lowest of low hanging fruit. Like they don't have to go directly at the China, excuse me, the North Korea Russia relationship. They can start hurting North Korea's revenue streams to make him uncomfortable. And we haven't even done that. And so, you know, for those who want to talk about North Korea sanctions or think about North Korea sanctions, that's the clearest indicator that we're in, we're, we're in a bad space there. I, you know, I'm, I defer to others who are true North Korea experts in terms of leadership, but 
Kim is comfortable now. To me, in 2018, 20, 2018, he was very uncomfortable. As you noted, one of the clear things he asked for was sanctions relief. We're nowhere near that. Now, maybe I'll be surprised and Biden tomorrow will you know, call Secretary Yellen and, say, and Secretary Blinken and say, let's unleash them, uh, unleash whatever you've got on North Korea, and we'll get back to this both numbers and qu- quality of sanctions. But we're nowhere near that. And I, I just don't see North Korea coming back to the negotiations for what purpose. I mean, even those out there who I don't agree with, who want to do arms control negotiations from the North Korea side, what, what is the reason that they would do that now? Uh, the reason they would do that in the future if there's some kind of uh, pressure on them, which would have to be economic pressure because the military pressure alone is not getting there and diplomatic pressure alone. As you said earlier, it's got to be all of them together. I mean, as we all know at this table, you know, the, the, the biggest flaw in the U.S.-North Korea policy is that we always pursue one element of our policy. We never sort of, we, we should have a toolbox here. We never open the toolbox and look at every different element that we could work together we've just never really gotten to that point maybe in those three years of 2016 2017 2018 but it's never been where we've been able to play each of them off of each other so anything you want to add to that i i think i'm completely on board with what you're saying especially the fact that um you know it's it's a complete toolkit that we need to consider i guess when we pursue let's say sanctions or we pursue just that diplomatic track the fact that we've been dealing with the North Korean problem for such a long time, I think, leads one to fatigue, but also there's this sense of like urgency to solve the North Korean problem, maybe. And from Kim's perch, it's not, I, I don't think that's the way he looks at it. He has a more of a, not an easygoing, but more of a relaxed long term approach that he's taking. And so long as he's able to sort of take that path with maybe some slight deviances. He's okay with that. But for us, it's like every four years when there's a change in administration, there are, of course, leadership priorities. But there's this tendency to want to either undo or to completely correct whatever was done in the past. And that's the corrective measure, I think, is, is, a, is you know, it's, it's applaudable. But at the same time, we're not really keeping focus on the problem itself. And we're trying so hard to do something that's vastly different from the previous administration when perhaps we should think about that. But, you know, if something in the past was tried and true, we should keep with it and also think about things that we haven't done and see what we can incorporate that would either make the approach more robust or, or, you know, Kim is also used to a certain way of dealing with the United States. So he's also comfortable with that. And it's not to say that we should go all out and do something that's dramatically different from, you know, the pursuit of diplomacy or, or, or sanctions. But we are still, I think, at times surprised by Kim's behavior. Or we were slightly taken aback. I don't think Kim's seen that from us. Um, so that's something that I think we also need to kind of keep in mind. Well, thanks. This was really a fascinating discussion. Uh, I don't think we often get a chance to dig sort of deep into this topic of sanctions. And so, I uh, re- really appreciate both of you joining us. And to our listeners and viewers, uh, thank you again for joining us on the Impossible State podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you join us on future podcasts, as well as you can look at some of our old ones online. Um, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you soon.
If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.